Well, I am glad you're here today. My name is Blair, and yes, I still work here. Um, let, me, uh, let me show you what I've been working on. I've never seen this anywhere. I don't know if it exists out there at all, um, which means there's a possibility that it's all messed up because I just made it up, okay? But I, I made up um, some stuff that I'm calling the matrix of decision-making, and, and I made a chart. So I made a chart because I'm... I'm talking to a lot of people on a regular basis who are trying to make decisions in their lives, and it causes them a lot of difficulty. So I started asking, well, what does this? And I realized that it's made up of a lot of different things that come into the mix. Like this line right here is going to represent the importance of the decision. Down here at the bottom, these are decisions that you make all the time. You make them pretty quickly. You don't even think much about them. Um, actually, this is a little weird. Some of those are your most important decisions. But you don't see it that way because you've made them so often they become a habit. And so it doesn't even register for you that that would give you any kind of difficulty whatsoever. But the further up this line it goes, the more important that decision feels to you. Until you get to the top, and that just causes a lot of angst. And so I asked, what in the world causes us to evaluate decisions as being more important or not? And I think there's two factors that come into this. One is the frequency at which you make that decision. If you see those decisions all the time, decisions are an incredible tool for you to learn and grow. So if you've been making that decision on a daily basis, a weekly basis, you make it every month, you've, you've seen it quite a bit, you've learned from it quite a bit, and so you're able to make that decision fairly rapidly without much difficulty for you at all. Um, so choices of, like you, by the way, it's the majority of the choices that you make every day that happen in that area. The majority of your choices are like things like, when am I going to wake up? What am I going to do today? What route am I going to take to work? Who am I going to speak with? All of these are decisions. They're important decisions, but they happen so often, they just don't register. But you start to go up the scale, you start making purchases over $500. Well, you don't do that every day. And so that causes a little more difficulty. Or you're planning a vacation. You don't, you don't do that all the time. And you start seeing that some of these things where you're making them um, maybe every other month or once a year, you don't have as much experience with those. By the way, the further up you go on that scale, you'll get to a place where some of the decisions that you make will be once or twice in a lifetime. You just don't have a ton of experience with those. And because of that, it causes like some issues within us. We get a little uh, conscious about that decision. But there's another thing that comes into play too. I think longevity is the other thing that, that makes us evaluate a decision on whether it's important or not. How long are the consequences of this decision going to last? When I, when I make a decision and I fail a test because I didn't study and I made that choice, I can recover by the end of the month on that because I took extra credit, I did some things and I got, or I, I, I chose the wrong priority at work today. 
And now it messed up my whole week. But I learned from that that won't happen again, and it only cost me a week. So I'm able to make that decision because it doesn't have longevity. But you start going up the scale of how long that decision is going to be around in your life. And, the, and that starts to cause a problems. If I buy this car, I'm, I'm wanting to own this for 10 years. That's, gonna, that's a little more of important of a decision. Who I'm going to marry. Whether I'm going to move across the country. The, the consequences of that choice could last a lifetime. And so, all of a sudden, it's really, really important to you. But it's not the only part that, makes a, that plays in all of this. There's another, uh, there's another line down here, too, and that's the desire to get it right. I'm convinced that this desire to get it right increases in intensity in proportion to how important you see this is. Go ahead and go to the next slide, and you can see the relationship that they have. Your desire to get, like, my desire to make sure I wear the right shoes to work today is not that high. If I make a mistake, my feet are sore for three days, and then it goes away, I don't make that mistake again. But if you go up the scale, and you're considering making a big purchase, or you're going to start a business where you're risking a whole bunch of capital. You want to get it right. Because that decision could change the direction of your life. It could shape your life. It could alter the course of everything. And so as you identify a more and more and more important decision, this is what happens. As your desire to get it right increases, a natural thing takes place in your life called stress. And we think sometimes that we should be able to face these decisions without it. It's not the way it works. It's, it, it brings stress and it brings a grouping of emotions with it. Almost every time, for everybody. Your desire to get it right causes you to worry, to have doubt, to deal with some fear. You, you, have, you have this mix of emotions that come along with it. And so you dive in and you're like, I need to get this right. And you talk to people. You figure out what's going on because this matrix is playing out in your life. By the way, I have noticed that not everybody operates based on this little chart that I just showed you. Let me show you a different chart. Um, yeah, this one right here. This is, this is what I would call the perfectionist. They believe that every decision that they make has to be right. Every one, every little choice they make. They, they have given up on the idea that you can learn through decision making. Sometimes you make the decision, you learn from that, you grow from that. They don't want that. That's a painful process sometimes. So everything is hard for them. Ask them to choose what restaurant to go to for lunch after church. And it will turn into a nightmare. Because they want to make the perfect decision and it doesn't exist. But they're, they're over there just uh, agonizing over everything. So I know, I know there's different 
layers of people who experience this kind of stuff. But let's go back to that other chart because I think right here is where the majority of people live. The majority of people experience decisions that they're going to make and as it grows in importance and it grows in their desire to get it right. In comes stress, in comes anxiety, worry, doubt, fear, and they don't know what to do with it. I, I want to make some observations about this process that I see unfolding in people's lives. And specifically, I want to make some observations about followers of Jesus. Because they, they seem to have a unique take on what's happening here with some expectations for how they think this should go. So let me, let me just, again, this is based on just a lot of conversations I've had over the years with people who are in the process of making any kind of decision. Um, one of the things that I've observed is that uh, followers of Jesus assume that as soon as the decision gets up into this range over here, that God cares more about that decision. They assume he has to. Why? Because the stakes are so high. This is important to me. I have a desire to get it right. If God has like a direction for my life, he, he must care more about this situation when it heats up. Which brings them to the second conclusion. They conclude that if God must care more about that, that it's their job to figure out, discover, unbury, unearth the hidden will of God. Like for some reason in their minds, uh, God is playing some sort of weird shell game with what he wants you to do in life. The right decision that you believe exists is under one of these shells. And God's over here doing this going, can you figure it out? And see, your desire to pray, your desire to seek advice, your desire to do all of that, it's not wrong. But some of that comes from this belief that you almost have to pry out of God's hand the answer to this question that you know he has to care about because it's so high on that chart. He's got to. It's important to me. It's got to be important to him. Here's the third truth. I think, ultimately, that what people really want is they want God to make the decision. They want to unload the responsibility for that Onto God Himself. And herein lies part of the problem. So I, I've observed all of these kind of desires that we have. I've observed this process and how it brings stress and angst and all kinds of emotions into our lives. And despite the fact that we think God should care more, should have His will revealed to us, how many times? I'm just, I'm just curious. How many times have you faced 
one of those important decisions in life that's high on the chart. And you felt like God was silent. Yeah, somebody raised a hand. Anybody else ever been there? Yeah, you, you, you just knew God had to care about this. So why in the world is he quiet? So I I've, um, have some more conclusions that I want to kind of take you to. And I want to do that through a section of scripture. But here's what I, here's what I got to warn you about. I'm going to take you to a very popular section of scripture that if you've been around the church at all um, over the course of your life, you've heard people teach out of this. My concern is that as soon as I tell you where we're going to go, you're going to think you already know where we're going to end up. And I just want to warn you, the main focus that I find everybody talking about this section of Scripture on, I think is wrong. I think they missed the boat. And I've read a lot getting ready for this, and I couldn't find anybody who agreed with me. But I still think, I still think, based on what I see in the text, that, that what everybody is focused on, they're focused on for the wrong reason. And if you could choose a different focus, that's what I'm going to offer you today, I think it could change how you approach these decisions so that's what I want to do, and I want to take you to Judges chapter 6. I want to introduce you to a guy named Gideon. And we're introduced to him, by the way, I know I like him immediately because he is in, he is in an act of rebellion when we come across his path. A foreign nation has kind of been invaded Israel. They're taking up all the food. They're leaving for the Israelites whatever they want. And you kind of have to survive on that. And Gideon said, that is not good enough for me. He went out into the field, grabbed some of the grain, and he was finding a way to get that process secretly so that his family would have more than what he was allowed to have. So he's got this heart of like, I'm not taking this. So I like the guy already. So we find him in this place. The angel of the Lord approaches Gideon, and these are the first words out of that angel's mouth. This is chapter 6, verse 12. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, I'm, I'm convinced I probably could do a series on this whole story. I'm not going to, which means we're going to skip a lot of things today. This is not a common greeting. In fact, if um, we tend to look at it like that. We read past it. This is not a read past. This is a big deal. There were two things that just got communicated in this little opening line that are significant. The first is, God says, I'm with you, Gideon. Which, by the way, Gideon immediately disagrees with. If you go and read this section of scripture, he's going to start going into how he knows what it looks like for God to be with him. His circumstances would be different. I wouldn't be hiding, getting food for my family. I wouldn't be in the family that you placed me in. You can't possibly be with me. I know what that should look like. You've gotten it wrong, God. So he immediately disagrees with the assessment that it starts with. But do you see the second thing that is said to him? Mighty warrior. God Almighty 
has just identified him as a warrior. And what do you think that means for his life? It means he's probably going to go to war. He is being tapped to be the person who steps up to rescue Israel. And he knows it. It's disturbing to him. And that's why he's arguing with God. You got the wrong person. You say you're with me, but you don't understand a thing. And there is where it all starts. Because he's concerned about all of this, he decides he's going to ask for something. Now here's the deal. Before we get to that, I, wa- I want to put point out the first truth that I think is important that we find in this section of Scripture. And by the way, I think it's all through the text. Here it is, truth number one. God does not hide his will from you. It's not a shell game. He's not making you search for it. You don't have to undig it somewhere. He puts it out in the open and makes it as clear as possible if he wants you to do something. It's the opening line with Gideon. And if you think about it, go back and start thinking about people in the text. Abram is approached. And what does God say? I want you to go here and build a nation that will bless the world. Moses, get my people out of there. Joshua, cross over, free this nation. Like, take the land back. Says to Peter, I want you to accept the Gentiles into Christianity. Like, they're just as much a part of this as the Jews are. He says to Paul, I want you to go to the Gentiles. I want you to spend time with them over and over and over again. Go look at the lives of the prophets. When God wants something from you, he makes it clear. It's not hidden. It's not a mystery. You don't have to wonder about it. He's he's going to give you some instruction. So the question is, when when the chart is way at the top, and you're feeling the pressure, and there's silence, why could there be silence? Well, there's a few reasons. One, you might not be ready to listen to God. By the way, Gideon wasn't. First words out of the angel of the Lord's mouth was, I'm with you, and he disagreed with him. Can I just tell you, I have experience with this. There have been, there have been decisions that I have faced in my life that I felt deep angst over, felt like God had left me out alone on an island, only to discover that the truth was I wasn't open to actually hear what God had to say to me in the first place. His voice would have been as clear as a bell if I hadn't put up barriers in between me and God. And so that's one of the things you would look at. Is there any way that I built a barrier between what God would say to me or not? Because if he wants you to do it, He's going to make it clear. That's not the only thing that could happen. It could be that he's already communicated to you. This this has happened in a few ways. He did this with Gideon. I've already told you what I want. If you came to me and asked me, what do you want me to do? I won't feel the need to repeat myself. This happens a lot in our culture because God did this incredible thing where he gave you some scriptures 
that reveal his will, his ways, his values. And I hear Christians praying whether they should actually follow his way, his will, and his values. And God's not going to answer your question because he already has. He's just waiting for you to catch up to him. And you're acting like God is silent. He's like, man, I spoke on this. I made it as clear as I could because I knew this was so important. I, I put it in a text that I passed down over the ages so that you could read it. I'm not hiding anything. It's right here. It's right here. It's available for you. But there's a third choice, a third possibility, and we find this one very difficult. Maybe God is silent because it's your choice. That, that what God does is he just provided you an opportunity to grow, to develop, to learn. And the only way you're going to do that is if you make the choice. That if you step up and say, okay, I'm going to face the consequences for this. I'm, I'm going to find a way to take this on. But we, we have this desire to make sure that God's the one who makes that decision, that we refuse the responsibility sometimes. And I think this is a little crazy. I think this is what happens a little bit. Is I think we've, we've actually looked at this gift of freedom that God gives us as a curse. I can't believe you're going to make me make this decision without you speaking up and telling me exactly what to do. And I think God looks at us and says, listen, you were a slave before I found you. You had no choice. You followed your desires, period. That's all you ever did. And I gave you an opportunity for a different kind of life. I'm opening up the possibilities for you that have never existed before. And part of that is that you get to make this choice why don't you enjoy your freedom? Like, I, I paid a price so that you could have that. Why don't you act grateful? Instead of like, I'm doing you some disservice by not making the decision for you. So I think sometimes God is just waiting for you to become the person that he saved you to become. I'm going to act with freedom and make this choice. Now, in our case in the scripture, Gideon's choice was fairly clear. God had a specific direction he wanted him to go, and he said, I want you to get ready to be a warrior. And in verse 17, Gideon says this. If I have found favor in your eyes... Give me a sign. And this, my friends, is where this whole section of Scripture starts to get just messed up for us. Because we see this issue of a sign, and our focus goes there. Our focus goes there, and we don't realize how ironic this question is. Do you know what he just asked him? Are you with me? What was the first words out of the angel of the Lord's mouth? I'm with you. And yet he's back at it going, are you with me? I need to know if you're with me or not because I'm facing a difficult situation, which, by the way, is fair. If you were looking at that matrix of decisions, where on that would you put 
deciding if the nation should go to war or not. It's pretty high up there on the stress, pretty high up there in the fear, doubt. But this is what happens. Gideon says, I, I want to know if I have favor with you. I need a sign. Will you stay for a meal? And the angel of the Lord says, yeah, I'll do that. He stays, by the way, this is an hours long thing. This would have taken hours to prepare. He does, and this is what happens. Uh, Gideon brings the meal to him. In verse 20, the angel of the Lord said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock, and pour out the broth. Like all your hard work, dump it out. Verse 21, fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. Like if you're looking for a dramatic sign, you just got one. That's pretty, like that's like, whoa. And here's what happens. We read this section of scripture and we think to ourselves, if God's willing to give Gideon a sign, God should be willing to give me a sign. And this is where it starts to get messed up because I don't think we were carefully reading the text when we saw what happened here. Gideon did not ask for clarity on what he should do. He was asking for what? Reassurance that you are with me. I'm about to go to war. I'm about to risk a bunch of people's lives. I need to know, are you with me? And we've committed what I consider a grave misunderstanding in this text. We have assumed that what Gideon did was asked for direction from God when he never did. All he did was ask, you know what, I'll do this, but I need to know that you're with me if I'm going to stick my neck out. And God gives him this, oh, like this burning fire, disappearing angel. This, this is incredible sign. And Gideon knows, Gideon knows He's with me. Now, this is why this is important. Here's, here's the second truth. God does not use signs to communicate his will. He doesn't use signs to communicate his will. He clearly does that. But unfortunately, too many people have read this section of Scripture and assumed that's what he was doing. That's not what he's doing. Look at what he's looking for. This is what happens next in the text. This is incredible stuff. He confirms to Gideon, I'm with you. And then he, he gives Gideon a clear task. I want you to go to your father's house. I want you to tear down his Baal altar. I want you to go into the community that you live and rip down the asterisk pole, these things that people were worshiping. And I want you to burn them. There's clarity in what I want you to do. And now there's some clarity that God is with him. And what does Gideon do? He does it. How big of a deal is this? Verse 30. Bring out your son, he must die. What we just learned is that this, this guy that the angel of the Lord identified as a mighty warrior, he is. Because he's willing to act. 
When God says, I want you to do, he was willing to act. And that's what he's looking for from you and I. If he speaks and he makes it clear, he doesn't need you to go and go, oh, I got to pray about this. He needs you to act. This would have been him risking his life and not caring because he had finally answered the question that he needed to know as a warrior. Are you with me? And God confirmed, I am. And off he went. As soon as he does that, God ups the ante. Now that I know that you're willing to act based on my clear direction, I'm going to ask for more. This is, by the way, how I think life works. God asks you to act, you listen, you become a follower of his, and he puts more on your plate because he is, he is looking for people who will act on his behalf in the world. And he looks at Gideon in verse 34 and he says, I want you to go to war, call everybody in, let's do this. And it's at this part in the scripture that those famous those famous signs that we read about take place. These are the ones where he lays out the fleece, right? But look, here's the motive for it. This is verse 36. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, does he know what God wants him to do? Yeah, he does. It's clear. Why is he not acting? Because it's serious. Have you, ever, have you ever had to make a decision in life where your choice could result in the life of death of somebody based on what you choose? There may be a few of you here who are doctors who have been in that kind of situation, but most of us weren't. If you were trying to identify on this scale where something like that would fall, my guess would be somewhere over there. Like it's off the chart. I'm trying to make a decision that's right. Like I, I, I know that God wants me to do this, but people are going to die when I make this choice. You know, it's funny. I think most of us have not realized that the chart actually looks like this when God says, I've made the decision for you. Your desire to get it right is solved. It's set. It's done. The it still feels like an important decision, but your desire to get it right is a settled fact. Here's the problem with this. It's always been the problem with this. We have assumed that the right decision from God means that our ease, our comfort, the smooth sailing ahead is what comes with that decision. That is not what I read in the scriptures. In fact, let's go back. Let's just ask ourselves real quick. God made it clear to Abram, was his life easier because of the direction that God gave him? I don't think so. Moses, smooth sailing, right? When he went to get his people out of, nope. Joshua, how about Peter? 
How about Paul? We didn't read any stories of Paul where things got difficult before. You know what I've concluded? Here's, here's what I think, and I, I could be wrong, but I think God saves his direct direction to you to say, I want you to do this when it's one of those things that if you logically thought about it, only a crazy person would make that choice. And you would be like, no, that's the dumbest thing I could ever do. I'm not making that. So God says, I want you to do it. And you say, out of my desire to follow you, it's the right choice. And I don't care how easy it is. I don't care how smooth it is. It's the right one because it's your will. And you made it clear, I'm going down that path. Besides that, I think there's a lot of freedom in a lot of the choices that we face. But we don't see it this way. We still see it like Gideon saw it. Like I know what God wants me to do, but you can't get past the fact that it still stirred up all those emotions. It still stirs up stress. It still fuels doubt and fear. And he's sitting on this pile of stuff wondering what in the world is he supposed to do. And so he says to God, I want a sign. And honestly, I think, truthfully, I think he made a mistake the first time he did it. Because the sign was, I'm going to put a fleece out on the ground. And then when I come out in the morning, if the ground is dry but the fleece is wet, I'm going to consider that a miracle. But think about this for a second. If the sun burned the dew off the ground, what's the last thing that would be dry? The fleece. I think he came out in the morning, he was like, oh, yeah, that, that was dumb. Um, Let's do the opposite of that. Let's do the opposite. That would be harder. If this, if this were dry but the ground were wet, that would make more sense. And I'm, I'm like, yeah, that does make more sense. The other one did not make sense to me. But okay, you figured it out and you said, let's do this instead. And he comes out the next day, fleece is dry, ground is soaking wet. He already knew what God wanted him to do. What he wanted to know is, am I in this alone? And God communicated to him again. By the way, this is the fourth time in the story. He communicated in the first meeting. He communicated one sign. He communicated another sign. Another sign. Four times now, I've communicated, I'm with you. And what does he do? He acts. He actually calls the army up. And then God starts messing with him again. He gets 42,000 guys to come out. Let's go to war. All right, let's do this. God says, too many. Sends 32,000 home. He's down to 10,000 guys. Does Gideon get shaken? No, he's ready to go. God's with him. God goes, okay, you're not shaken. That's good. Um, I'm going to take and knock out everybody else except for 300 guys. And now Gideon's like, I know what you want me to do. It's clear. I acted, I got these people here, but now I'm down to 300 people. What are you doing, God? And God sends him to the camp of the Midianites, and he listens to a story of a dream that somebody has, where, and he interprets it as Gideon's going to come rolling in here and crush us, and once again, he realizes God is with me, and he goes back and with those 300 guys, attacks Thousands, tens of thousands of people. 
He does that. Because God is looking for people who will act based on what he says. And it's dramatic. Let me give you a third truth from this story that I think is critical. God has unending patience for his people who need, who need reassurance of his presence. God has unending patience when you need reassured that God is with you, that you're not alone, that you haven't stuck your neck out without him being there. This is four times now that he was given signs, one time where it was communicated directly, I'm with you. And if I could, if I could convince you that the focus of this scripture isn't about whether you should use signs or not, because I think they're risky for decision making, I don't think God ever intended that. And I think sometimes what happens is we don't like the the silence that God gives us, and so we say to him, I'm going to make you make this decision whether you do it clearly or not. I'm going to read into it. I'm going to come up with a sign because I'm not going to be responsible for this. And we demand that God answers our question, and we use signs to do it. But it appears that God is comfortable using signs to reveal to you that I am with you You're not alone. You don't have to face this by yourself. Can I tell you, there have been a few moments in my life where I had made, um, in one case, a decision that I thought God wanted me to make. In another case, a decision that I felt God had given me the freedom to make. And the whole path ahead of me looked terrible. And I was asking, what in the world have I done? Why am I here did I make the wrong decision? How do I get out of this? God, this is, this is a mess. I've made a huge mistake. And you want to know the one thing that calmed me? One thing. God reminded me that he was with me. It was enough. It was enough to calm my spirit. To say, yeah, he knows exactly what I'm going through. He knows what's down the road. He hasn't left me. He hasn't abandoned me. This is just part of the process that I have to go through. This is going to be rough, but I'm not alone. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. This, I have been married a long time, and I will have my wife crawl up next to me on a couch and say to me, Honey, do you love me? And initially, like when I was younger, like a logic bomb would go off in my head, and I'd be like, have I done anything that suggests that I don't? Where is this question coming from? What is going on? And over the years, I finally realized all that, that all that's going on is sometimes in our relationship, fear, doubt, anxiety kind of creeps in. And all I had to do to alleviate that was to look at my wife and say, Honey, I love you. Sometimes, I'm not joking about this, that happens three times in one day. Like, what's happening here? But all I had to do was just say, yes, I love you. Yes, I love you. Yes, I love you. And she relaxed. Do you guys know that God feels that way about you? Do you know he has an intense love for you? 
that follows you into these decisions that you have to make that cause stress in your life. When you're wrestling with doubt and fear and anxiety, he is there present with you. And if you asked him, he would love to reassure you that his love is there. There is a reckless love that has pursued you forever. And if his presence with you doesn't make a difference, I'm not sure anything will. Because when Gideon realized God was present, he acted. And he was bold. And if the one thing that we ultimately need is to be reminded of God's love, his presence with us, and you went and you searched for it and you asked for it, I'm convinced that God would reveal that over and over again because he has an unending patience to reveal his reassuring love for you. He loves you. You're not alone. He knows exactly where you're at. He knows exactly what you're facing. You are not on this journey by yourself. And if you would remember that, it just might change your life. Can I pray with you? God, we are all in a place where we'll face decisions throughout the rest of our life. It's just the way it is. And you actually care about that. Sometimes you care about it so much that you'll be direct with us. And God, I ask that as you're clear about what you want with our lives, that we'll have the courage to follow, that we'll have the courage to act on that. And other times, you're going to be silent because you just want us to experience that freedom, to celebrate the freedom that you bought for us. But even in the midst of all of that angst, it's okay for us to cry out, for us to look for you, to remind us that you're present because you, you love that. It's just a truth that has existed. And if we need reminded of it, you're okay with that. God, it's kind of crazy, but through the whole section of that section of Scripture, not once, not once did you reveal that you were annoyed, upset at, disappointed that Gideon was asking for reassurance. And that's because in your heart, you'll give it in a second to whomever asks. So I ask that you would give us the courage to ask for the right thing, and when we realize your presence, to have the boldness to act on that. We love you. So grateful that you love us too. In Jesus' name, amen.